Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Thursday, the 24th of February. It's the day after Finance Minister Inoko Dongwana gave his maiden budget uh, address. And now it's about digesting all the facts and figures. Who better than Brenthurst Wealth Management founder Magnus Haystack? He gives his five cents on the 182 billion rand tax windfall and sure to have our finance minister smiling. Then after that, Discovery's Adrian Gore chats to Justin Rowe Roberts about their central model and how repeatability has allowed the medical giant to migrate well beyond its core business. You'll hear my voice in the Nova Business Report as I chat to our partners across the border in Namibia on the back of the 2022 budget speech. Then there's another update from Andrew Goodhead, who's cycling to our Biz News conference happening in the Drakensberg. Listen to this all the way from Cape Town. And then, of course, much, much more to come on the show. But now, to your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Russian troops and tanks pushed into Ukraine and airstrikes hit the country's capital and more than a dozen other cities early on Thursday after President Vladimir Putin said he ordered a military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine and bring its leaders to trial. In a televised early morning address, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky called on citizens to remain calm and said he had ordered the introduction of martial law across Ukraine and had spoken with President Biden about the attack. Biden called Putin's move an unprovoked, unjustified attack in Ukraine, pledging further action against Russia. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson tweeted that President Putin has chosen a path of bloodshed and destruction and said the UK and its allies would respond decisively. KwaZulu-Natal Premier Sikhle Zikalala has announced that there are plans to turn the SA Petroleum Refineries refinery in Durban into a state-owned oil company. Zikalala was delivering his State of the Province address on Thursday in Pietermaritzburg. Two weeks ago, Shell and BP announced a pause for an indefinite period of SAPREF, not ruling out a possible restart or even a future sale. The Durban-based refinery, established in 1963, is the largest crude oil refinery in the country and supplies 35% of the country's fuel supply. A recent investigation has uncovered further information regarding the crime networks that captured and paralyzed the state security agency between 2008 and 2018. The budget of the Director General of the agency grew by 621% during his first year as intelligence boss, according to documents submitted to the Zondo Commission. The increase in his budget allegedly enabled him to spend hundreds of millions of rands directly managing covert operations that included projects for the benefit of former President Jacob Zuma. And now to my colleague Justin for the market report. JSE All Share Index was lower at 73,600, and the price action commodity counters are soaring on the back of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Harmony, Anglo, Everything, and Sabanya are all well up, 
The general market is under pressure, however, broadly in line with global markets. However, any counters with exposure to the region or nearby regions in Eastern Europe are being affected. This Barlow World and Nepi Rock Castle, some of the worst large caps affected. The Geltech crypto basket is 10% lower on the day as crypto dives with global markets. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 32 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 54 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 12 cents to the euro. Gold was stronger at $1,961 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 31,500 rand. Brent crude is trading at $104.50 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 540,000 rand. In the financial news, Discovery has published its interim results for the period at 31 December 2020, with the financial services group seeing continued growth in its health business, while banking losses were lower than expected. Group operating profit increased by 8% to 4.6 billion rand over the period, while headline earnings increased by 26% to 2.8 billion rand. Normalized headline earnings per share increased by 26% to 4 rand 40 cents, and headline earnings per share increased by 78% to 5 rand. Normalized headline earnings were positively imp- impacted by mark to market foreign currency gains arising from a weakening of the rand during the reporting period. Compared with losses due to the RAND strengthening in the previous period, Discovery said in a statement to shareholders. The gain was partly offset by substantial support provided to the national mass vaccination campaign in South Africa, for which Discovery spent 137 million RAND over the reporting period. Magnus Haystack, Brenthurst Wealth Management Founder. Magnus, this wasn't your first budget speech and it certainly won't be your last. Uh, what were your main takeaways? Just a high-level analysis to start up with. I think my impression was it's it's like a, a, a new a Springback fly half. He's having his first game. The whole world is watching his moves and what he's going to do. And I kind of got the impression he was a little bit nervous at start and he was he was jumping around. But then he got into his rhythm and it wasn't a bad speech. I mean, let's be fair. You know, it's it was a very neutral uh, speech came across well and with a bit of humor here and there. So it wasn't too bad, but it's early days. I must tell you that. And I must tell you what, as they say, as Gary Play always used to say about luck, luck counts. Now, the new Minister of Finance came into the position with a tremendous amount of luck in the form of the commodity boom. And we've spoken about this on this program, I think going back a year already, where I said, South Africa, the lucky country. And suddenly, you've got this enormous commodity cycle bringing with it an enormous economic and tax um, windfall of anything between 180 and 200 billion rand. And, and that changes everything. I mean, any minister of finance would love to go into a budget speech knowing that there's an extra 182 billion in the bank and he can come across as being very generous and he's going to get a great coverage but that's the danger. The danger is, is it a windfall? Is it permanent? And how are they going to deal with the fact if it is not permanent and the commodity cycle goes down again, heaven forbid, as it has done in the past, 2011 uh, previous cycles, and they go down very dramatically. And then, and, and, and that, that's the big issue. Is this a short-term windfall or is it more permanent? And, and we, we'll only, only time will tell. 
Magnus, what is Treasury looking to do with this windfall? And with your concerns, what would you do if you were in the position of the finance minister with this great windfall that has come as a result of the tailwinds from the commodity boom? Well, from a purely economic point of view, the windfall should have been used uh, mostly to reduce our, our fiscal situation, the slow movement towards a debt standstill. But from a political and a socio-economic perspective, we're sitting with an unemployment number of 40% plus. We're sitting with tremendous human suffering across the country, job losses, uh, people without jobs. And I think it was a very, very hard decision to make. Um, what do I do first? And I think it's a, it's a balancing act. We had 45 billion rand of that is going to the extension of this basic, uh, the unemployment uh, grant. And now the big debate is, is it going to become permanent? And afterwards, on, on one of the TV channel interviews, the minister was not uh, very specific. He dodged this issue about whether it's going to become permanent or not. But nevertheless, that issue was also raised by Isa Mushlangu, the uh, economist of Alexander Forbes. He wrote a very, very good piece two days ago warning that if this becomes permanent and at a higher level that a lot of people are pushing for, we could be running into serious financial difficulty two or three years down the line. And, and that is your danger. So it's a mixture of politics, uh, what needs to be done, common sense, and of course, and in South Africa, nobody's always happy or unhappy. It's a little bit of everything. Magnus, let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure spend. We heard about it first around 18 months ago. Whether it's been implemented or not, we don't know. If I look at the results of the construction companies and the management that I chat to when their results come out, there's no sign that this infrastructure spend is in action. They still talked, spoke about it today. Um, what were your takeaways from that little theme, the infrastructure-specific spend? Yeah, there's, it's quite clear that if you speak to anybody in construction, they are all looking a little bit askew and looking at each other and saying, where is this construction spend? It's not happening with my company, but and, and quite, quite bluntly, it's not happening. Uh, we've been talking about this for how long? Sonar speeches, budget speeches, um, this massive ex infrastructure spend, but it still is not happening. Let's hope it starts rolling out quite now. The big problem is... Do we have the capacity left in South Africa to handle such big projects? A lot of our big construction companies have laid off people, have merged, have closed down, and our construction sector has shrunk fairly dramatically. There's been an exodus of skilled people, engineers, road builders, to other parts of the world as a result of the non-delivery in South Africa. Now we have the issue of infrastructure being included into pension fund um, assets, type of prescribed assets, the large pension funds um, are already saying that they would love to get involved. But the big issue is, are there projects that are bankable and will produce a return to the investors? Because remember, this is not government money, it's not taxpayers' money, it's pensioners' money. And this is where it's going to be very, very interesting. We've already seen on Sunday, we saw Professor Mark Swilling, you know, he's the chairman of the Development Board of South Africa, saying that the construction mafia 
has to be dealt with. They have invaded most construction projects across the country. So this is not just bar talk. This is from the top saying it's a reality. Anywhere where there's construction activity in South Africa, these guys just rock up, uh, intimidate uh, the workers, the staff, saying, oh, we want 30% of this con contract. And people are closing up shop. We've had people killed in, in Rich's Bay a while ago. So this is a real problem. There's, there's the mafia-style intimidation of construction industry. And you now have the pension fund managers who would like to spend money in that sector, and it still is not happening. This is a very problematic. How do you put all these moving parts together that in the end of the day, it adds to the upliftment of the economy of uh, South Africa's future, but produces a return to the investors. And if it doesn't produce uh, a return for the investors, because this is going to be watched by the media, guys like yourself, myself, how will individual investors re react if they see that their money, which is going into infrastructure partially, is not returning any kind of returns beyond inflation? So that's a very, very interesting period we're moving into. Let's talk about ESCOM for a second. Almost unequivocally, analysts and strategists like yourself see ESCOM as one of the major threats to South Africa's financial health. Uh, the debt burden has been slashed somewhat, although there's been tailwinds such as favorable currency movements. Um, the sustainability of cutting that debt is a little bit unknown at this point. What were your takeaways from the ESCOM specific part of the minister's speech? There wasn't much about it that struck me. I mean, we all know that the ESCOM problems going back 12, 13 years has been a massive macroeconomic dampener on the South African economy in the sense that no major industrialist will open up a plant if they're not sure about the electricity supply. The same goes for gold mines, platinum mines. So there's been very, very little new developments, uh, new grassroots developments. As a result of ESCOM, so many industrialists that I speak to said, I'm not opening up a factory. If I don't know, I can get power. Why would I do that? The foreigners are moving away. So we've already paid the price for ESCOM. It was heartening to see that I think 136 billion rands of ESCOM debt has been paid off. Now, that's going to be interesting how it's been done, but that was the announcement. We'll have to now go and analyze that number. But the ESCOM issue is still this big, massive gorilla in, 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 in the room and how it's dealt with, you know, are they busy, genuinely busy breaking it up into three parts, as I've said, are they going to allow the private sector to come in and produce uh, uh, their own power to assist the national grid? And it's all a mixture of economics and politics, which in South Africa tends to become very murky and in some cases quite, quite bloody. Magnus, are the facts changing with regards to South Africa as an investment destination or is it simply too early to say so? No, it's way too early to say so. One must, you know, one must accept that... Uh, the, the RAND and the global markets, we suddenly, and we're talking six, seven weeks, barely, the RAND has strengthened, been one of the best performing markets, but it's been driven by commodity. And if you can look at the stocks on our market that are running or have been running, platinum, chrome, iron ore, and then interestingly, one or two banks. Now, I come back, having been in this business almost as long as Alec, that 
the commodity cycle bites you in in a very sensitive place when you don't expect it. Just as you think we are in a new commodity super cycle, you've got it tapped, you know everything, you supply, demand, equilibrium in the markets, something changes, a war breaks out, or worse, peace breaks out, and boom, the market changes. So the danger is that this commodity cycle is unpredictable and very cyclical and can turn around very, very quickly. So it's very important how government handles this windfall, added to how it's going to deal with this big, the basic income grant. I've now read three or four reports in the last week from various economic commentators, but very serious economic commentators. I'm talking about Isa Mashlango, I'm talking about uh, Claude Baisak, I'm, I'm talking about Dr. or Professor Ricardo Hausman from Harvard, uh, and the two others that I've read, and they've all the lights are going on and saying, if this is not handled well, we could run into a major, major fiscal problem two to three years down the line, and that will normally take the, the place of uh, a debt standstill or and then a currency crash. Those, those two factors have not gone away, Justin. And to answer your question, it is nice to look at people that their local assets are now starting to perform, but that doesn't mean the strategy, uh, the offshore strategy that we've been following for 13 years now has changed. Nobody, not one of my clients has phoned up and said, bring back my money. That's not happening. They are very happy, very comfortable with uh, that long-term strategy. Magnus, I've got three questions on the pension fund amendments that uh, are being held for Gazette um, next month. The first is very simple. What are the current legislation with regards to pension funds and um, regulate, regulatory 28 funds in South Africa currently? We, we basically touched on them. One, is, one of the regulations coming through is this two-pot approach by government where they're going to basically create two pots in your pension fund, one, the one-third, two-thirds. And if you run into financial difficulty, which would be very strictly defined, you will be allowed access to that one pot uh, under under certain circumstances, etc. The two-third pot will, will remain there for the rest of your life, which is very interesting. Many commentators have missed. This means you cannot withdraw the two-third pots for your entire life. So that money stays there from the day that you join the fund until you retire. So no more early withdrawals and, 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 and withdrawals from pension funds, which is quite quite a significant move in the preservation of pension funds for South Africans. Because South Africans are notoriously, when they run into financial difficulty, they run to the pension fund, whip it out, either resign, pull it out, and they start all over again. The second part is, of course, this infrastructure, uh, which will now be allowed in terms of the amended Regulation 28 uh, Rules and pension funds, I'm talking about the big, big funds, Alexander Forbes, Mutual, Sunlam, will be allowed to, based on trustee decisions and fund managers, a certain percentage of their capital into infrastructure plans, whether it's 5 or 10 or 15%, that depends on the manager stroke trustee, which, as we discussed earlier in this program, sounds great on paper, but will it um, eventuate in, in, in reality? Or would I rather say, like the Irish say, we know it works in practice, but will it work in theory? 
What, what are you looking for in the amendments next month? You know, I can't answer your question. I mean, we there's much, there's not much that we can do. We need to know how the first of all, what impact, and this is a slow moving target. We won't know for at least a couple of years what impact the exposure to infrastructure product uh, projects in South Africa will have on retirement fund returns. We can only speculate. We can only trust the fund managers that they've done their homework. So we'll be watching that carefully down the line. And what kind of choice will they give people? Will they give people choice and saying, are you happy to put money into an infrastructure pot or not? Or would it be one size fits all? So those finer details we don't know yet, and that could become, that could become quite interesting. I'm not just for business, and I'm chatting to incredibly brave business tribe member Andrew Goodhead, who has been travelling for three days now on his solar-powered e-bike, and he's with incredible business community members. Andrew, tell me, where are you now? I'm in Saifontaine. Uh, it's a lovely farm, uh, 42 kilometres from Fraserburg. I was meant to make it all the way to Loxton tonight, but... The legs weren't doing it. So I pulled in this evening and had a very warm welcome from a fabulous uh, farm community here. Sitting next to a brave little boy, part of a family that has welcomed this crazy man on a bike <laughs> with two and a half meters of solar panels behind him. David, how are David? Good. En wat het jy gedink toe hierdie man by julle plaas aankom, met al die goed achter sy fiets? Ek het gedink, hy is nogal smal. Ja, dit was een vreemde gezicht om hom hier te sien aankom, maar ek kon sien, hy het een vonk in sy oog, en um, ja, het het ek gedink, ek sal die man graag beter wil leer ken, en hy het een interessante story. Baie dankie dat jylle so mooi na hom kyk van ons, ons is rechtig so, 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 so dankbaar. Dit is ons plezier en voorrecht. Okay, so tell me about your day today. The day was wonderful. I had a great start cycling um, out of Rogerkloof. Uh, I was followed almost the whole way with a, a herd of springbok. And from there on, a beautiful cycle in the morning up to the... <coughs> the observatory and then the dirt road started and it was quite a brutal 100 and probably 160 kilometers of dirt road today with a lot of ruts the ruts took a hammering on my solar panels what are ruts i'm sorry i must ask you you get a smooth dirt road and then you get a rutted dirt road it forms little bumps in the sand and it makes cycling or driving very unpleasant Thank goodness there was a grader on the road, but I had already done probably most of the day by the time I saw the grader. So good times are ahead for the people in this area. So the ruts uh, gave my solar panels a hammering and I, uh, I pulled in this evening with some repairs to be done, which I did with a little bit of the extra daylight that I had, um, tightened some bolts, did some soldering, and they're all ready to go tomorrow. All right, so tell me about your journey tomorrow. What are we looking at? 
tomorrow I've got a little bit of catch up to do. I'll be heading through okay. to Victoria West where I've got an appointment with a, a primary school and I will be giving a quick chat, showing them the bike. Response from the children along the roadside has been phenomenal. Uh, a lot of excitement. So I think tomorrow will, that will be a highlight. And then from there on, I'll try aim for Phillipstown. Um, it will probably be a 220 kilometer day, but I'm leaving early and been invigorated by the wonderful food here at, at this great host family. Some beautiful chicken pie. Chicken pie. Oh, amazing. And David, what's the air from Andrew? Is that cool? Oh. Uh, my mother, yeah. <laughs> Adrian Gore, founder and CEO of Discovery. Adrian, I think it's evident at this stage that Discovery is no longer just a medical and life insurance business. It's becoming a conglomerate of sorts. Do you believe that sticky, loyal customer base through your core medical and life insurance units have paved the way for growth in other avenues such as Discovery Bank and Discovery Invest and will continue to lead to other avenues of growth that haven't been explored yet? Um, I think the answer to that must be uh, unequivocally yes. I think that we have a fantastically loyal client base, but I think that the I think the mechanism of the shared value of getting people engaged in, in behavioral change and through vitality has created a repeatable model. So your observation, I think, is right. I think it hasn't been, we're not a conglomerate that's kind of growing into adjacency. We've got a central model that's repeatable into different environments. And I think the bank, as you point out, is a, a great example of that. Uh, so strongly agree. Let's start with your core medical and life insurance businesses. How do you plan on growing that business unit from a market share perspective one would think you have the lion's share of your total addressable market. And from a price perspective, with the South African consumer under pressure, simple price elasticity of demand theory is not in your favor either. I think you, I think you make a good point. I think Discovery Health and the Discovery Health medical scheme is, is big and it has 58% market share. It can continue to grow. And we've seen that amazingly during this period, like 29% increase in, in new business. So during kind of a COVID, people, there's a flight to quality. And I think that's what we've seen. So I think we can grow. Um, the fundamental issue on our model using Vitality is actually doing prices down if you manage your health well, you know, regardless of your state of health. So in fact, we are trying to offer price points that are cheaper and better and more better value for money. So I agree with your, your observation. We're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to offer value for money through better behavior, you know, even in the bank better rates of interest if you're managing your money, et cetera. So it should not be an expensive product. And I think that's how we have managed to achieve market share. Discovery Bank, this is where the majority of expansion CapEx is being put towards. Commentary in your results suggest a solid performance. The traditional banks are performing really well. So the environment doesn't seem to be all doom and gloom, as people suggest. Could Discovery Bank be the group's crown jewel in, say, 10 years' time? I hope it is. I mean, I think the bank's performance over the period has been has been staggering. I think across every single uh, variable, but probably the most notable stuff is client acquisition and the engagement clients are getting with the bank. They really like what they're using, you know. Um, and I think if we can do that and continue to do that, it will grow. The banking space in South Africa is very, very big. We see that, you know, we're doing like seven, eight hundred accounts uh, clients a day, uh, which is bigger than any of our other business lines. Uh, so I, I again, I, I agree with you. I think that the bank for us. 
not only should should be a powerful bank in and of itself, but it's kind of a composite maker, as we call it. The other products will sit in it and around it, you know. So, so I think it can be the central piece of the South African business. I came across a line item in your financial highlights that I'm not accustomed to: embedded value per share. If it's in the highlights, I'm sure it holds quite a bit of importance. At 126 rand, could you just unpack that line item? Well, the embedded value is kind of an actual measure of the present value of profitability. It's kind of like a net asset value, so to speak, in an insurance company. So it is a, it is a, it is an, it is something that we measure very, very carefully. The only issue in our business is a lot of our businesses are not in that calculation. So Ping On Health, um, uh, Discovery, Insure, the stuff we're doing globally, none of that stuff is in there. It really measures the traditional businesses like Discovery Life and Discovery Health. So it's an important number, and I think what's more important maybe is its progression from year to year. Is it growing? You know what's driving it, but um, it's, it is an important number. Uh, I'm very pleased with its growth uh, in this period. Let's touch on Ping An Insurance, your Chinese minority stake. Uh, operationally aside, is this still part of your future plans, despite the ominous behaviour we've seen from the Chinese government and regulatory authorities? No, it certainly is. I mean, if you look at the spend of healthcare in China and the kind of emerging middle class, healthcare is in its nascent phase. So the scale of, of healthcare spend is likely to grow to, at a rapid rate. So for us, it's, it's a central piece of how we, we're moving ahead. I mean, the truth in China, from our perspective, is there's been a pretty predictable regulatory environment. The crackdown has been on tech companies and some of the other areas that you know the government sees as abusive or whatever. In our case, there's been a very careful, deliberate strategy about actually promoting the private health insurance market. So it's a very important part of our of our future going forward. I'm very, very pleased with our, our work with Pingon. I'm sure you try to block out all the noise and focus on the business from an operational perspective. But Kathy Wood, founder of ARK Invest and well-known growth fund manager in the US, bought around 600 million rands worth of discovery stock in a fintech fund a few months ago. Kathy is seen as a visionary of sorts amongst the businesses she invests in. Were you aware of this and what are your comments on that? Um, I actually was in, aware of it. And I, I mean, I obviously know uh, I've met Kathy in a Zoom call actually prior to that. Um, I mean, I, I guess I guess for us, and I try to put that across in the in, in the presentation this morning is, you know, we are, we are and we need to build on this leadership position, the ability to predict illness and to change behavior. And to an extent, it's that part of our tech that I think is consistent with some of Kathy and her team's thinking. You know what I'm saying? So that's that really is the magic, I think, in our model. We've got to develop it faster and better. We're doing well, but there's more to be done. And Adrian, what do you have to say for your friends at Brightrock? Do you think what they're doing is good for the competitive landscape of insurance in South Africa? Yes, I, I, I do think so. I mean, these, you know, these new starts and these companies are now big. Uh, I think a sign of a great company is people break away and do great things and I often come back and they compete with you. I have great respect for them and I think it's good for the consumer. We're a tough group to compete with, so you know we relish the competition, but I think it's wonderful. I take my hat off to them. ESCOM Debt Solution. We're dealing with that issue in detail. Interesting in the speech, we're dealing with that issue in detail in this speech. The reason we're dealing with it, uh, uh, there's been some discussion amongst a number of people, including our team in ALM, which has come to the conclusion that 
If you look at the structure of EFSCOM that does what they call distrust component of it, which whether you like it or not, ESCOM will never be able to, to pay it. Some fiscal intervention will probably be necessary. Um, will probably be necessary. I'm saying well and good, but let's see some action from ESCOM side. Let's see some uh, 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 turnaround plans, efficiencies. Let's see them selling assets. We don't want any assets to sell. We don't want the money. But it must go to, to us settling that. There must be an effort on their side. Let's meet our, each other in a way which is uh, constructive. Uh, the unfortunate, I'm, I'm, I don't know, but uh, that's the conversation we want to have with ESCOM. We're not saying no, but we're saying let's have a conversation about how do we get to that solution. It's an outstanding question. Let me just say, other than ESCOM, which is a long outstanding commitment we've made, no provision is made in this budget for any state-owned enterprise. Right? It doesn't mean we're not. Part of tough love doesn't mean we're not support. It, it, what it does say, you will support provided certain conditions are met. So, other than the commitment was made, we've made over the MTF on, on ESCOM, no other provision is made in this budget. Am I correct, Jim? You, you are correct. Obviously, land bank. Oh, land bank. Land bank is is a, is a different thing, no. because we're still a land bank because we're still negotiating with the lenders, an amount which was made, which we may have to transfer for the next financial year. But it doesn't mean <coughs> it will not be funded. Not at all. I'm not saying that. But what we are trying to say. This notion that people will be entitled to say, we didn't perform and so on, we're running out of cash, and then a treasurer must come in. No, you've got to meet specific requirements and demonstrate that you are serious about cost containment, you are feeling about proper management, you are serious about a whole range of other things. So it doesn't mean we, at the appointment time, when you see me one day coming up and say, I've got dinner, uh, and say, but where, what happened to tough love? When we are negotiating with them, tough conditions, or anybody. Tough conditions, people must make those kind of, because over time, people must move out of dependence on the state. If you don't put those conditions of a transition, working out, make sure that you move out of dependence on the state, that's what the eventual end must be. Uh, so, we, I mean, there's a time, I mean, we, um, I've explained the ESCOM situation, that we deal with it in detail, and it's something which we cannot avoid uh, because of its nature and 
I'm dealing, we're dealing with it. And each state-owned institution will be examined and dealt with on its own merits. There's no blanket support. Everybody will have to come to the two, demonstrate that you are a good child. For you to be rewarded, you must come and say, I'm a good child, I'll behave uh, from now moving forward. I need just need a transition, then we'll talk business. We'll talk, because we've never done that to ESCOM for years, even for ESCOM. If you look at it from 2008 to today, 13 years we've been putting money into ESCOM, 290 billion rand. ESCOM's performance is not different today as it was in 2008. And we we'll spend more time fixing ESCOM than fixing electric supply to this economy. And there's a difference between the two. There's a difference between the two which links that to the growth strategy we're talking about. If we can't get electricity, in this economy, I don't care who brings it. What we want is electricity. So we've not been focusing on electricity supply. We've been focusing on fixing XCOM for 13 years. Can't be right. And that attempt, XCOM is no better than it was in 2008. So we've got to take hard decisions, hard choices, even XCOM come to the plate, to table it, they will have to sell asset as part of that. Thank you. Michael Apple joins me on the line now from Biz News. And Michael, it's being called a, a Goldilocks budget uh, because it feels, I would imagine, that everything's just right. Is that right? 182 billion reasons to smile if you're the finance minister, Gary. Um, 182 billion rand tax windfall, um, commodity boom cycle doing us a massive favor and obviously uh, making him seem like a very generous man on his maiden budget speech. Uh, so, yeah, Biz News very busy yesterday. Uh, our editor, Alec Hogg, was in the mother city uh, sending through free. He was in the, the lockup session. And as soon as the finance minister started speaking, we just got flooded with information. Some of it good, some of it bad, some of it we're a bit ambivalent about. Uh, but overall, Alec Hogg and some other pundits who know what they're talking about say they are pretty positive about the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Uh, and the sentiment within the finance ministry, within Treasury, um, Alec Hogg wrote a very good article saying, relax, South Africa. And um, uh, Alec is convinced that uh, Enoch Gonongwana's approach is sensible, conservative, measured, even though he did pick up that he wears a hat. So therefore, he's <laughs> slightly flamboyant. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's, let's just take a look at uh, some of the elements of that budget. As you say, the windfall making a huge, uh, just a, a great buffer for, for South Africa, unexpected uh, as part of commodities. But you still need to be able to balance the books. Um, and interestingly, you know, for a long time, South Africa has been accused of being business unfriendly, uh, but they've cut the reduction in corporate tax. 
Yeah, that's right. It's gone down a percentage point, I think from 28 to 27%. Uh, so that's, uh, that's good news there. Um, there are a couple of other things that um, are, are good news uh, for not just the South African consumer, but, uh, but motorists especially. Uh, there's been no hike in the fuel levy or the road accident fund levy. And Gary, it's the first time since 1990 that this has happened. And I think it's indicative of an acknowledgement from the government of just how stretched the consumer is in South Africa. But naturally, sin taxes, booze and smokes, that's gone up as it always does every year. But there are several reasons to smile. Automobile Association really welcoming this move by, by Treasury. I mean, we're probably likely to see oil spike anyway, just based on what our friends in Europe are doing at the moment. Um, th my question around corporate taxes, is a percent, does it make a difference? Well, it, it seems to to certainly have made a difference. Um, and, you know, a lot of this also comes to, um, it comes down to, to just how friendly, how business friendly South Africa is or is trying to be in the future. And if you just cast your mind back to what the, uh, president said in his State of the Nation address when he announced that we are now, I mean, we've heard this before, but he seems to now actively have set up this unit within the presidency to cut um, the red tape and to just to get rid of the bureaucracy of trying to set up businesses, try and attract investment. Uh, the Deputy Finance Minister, David Masondo, yesterday was talking about structural reforms in the economy, how we're trying to dismantle monopolies, get competition going uh, to be able to drive down production prices. It's just too expensive to do business in South Africa. So they're hoping to, to drive uh, private investment back into the economy because it's simply been, it's just been too expensive in the past. Let's talk about debt. So there's still a, despite the fact that there's this windfall of 182 billion, uh, we're still looking at a shortfall. So we're still not uh, in, in any sort of surplus environment, as far as I can tell. Um, the shortfall does narrow from 6% to 4.2% to later. Uh, spending's up from 2.1 trillion uh, to 2.1 trillion from just over 2 trillion this fiscal year. So a lot of money being pumped back into infrastructure as well. Yeah, but, you know, there is this acknowledgement uh, that South Africa simply cannot uh, cannot loan or borrow its way out of its fiscal responsibilities. And uh, the, the finance minister yesterday saying that uh, debt to GDP, uh, 75%, um, this is lower than was expected a couple of years ago where they thought we would top out at 100% of GDP. But um, a, a number of commentators also making the point that uh, we are not looking to take more debt on board. We're looking to reduce uh, our debt uh, ratios. But it's a very tough situation we're in, Gary. 40% plus unemployment um, of this windfall, this $182 billion, 45 billion of that uh, is going towards an extension of the so-called um, COVID-19 uh, distress grant. And this is a 350 Rand grant that goes out to, I think, close to about 11 million South Africans. They're going to extend that by a year until March 2023. So that's 45 billion of the 182 already taken care of. You know, we've got 46% of the population that's sitting on a social grant or that is dependent on a social grant. And while there's a lot to smile about, there are a lot of 
questions also around the public sector wage bill. I mean, it's it's massively inflated. There's been promises around reducing that uh, for many years now, but uh, there just wasn't a lot of clarity from the finance minister around that public sector wage bill saying that Treasury factors in sort of a 2% increase for public servants. And I mean, Gary, when last did you see a 2% increase in, in public sector wage bill? That's a bit ambitious. And then the cost of, uh, of, of social grants going to the future. Are we going to have a permanent, big, basic income grant? Is this um, this, this temporary uh, extension of COVID-19 distress grant just going to morph itself into some uh, unsustainable basic income grant? We're, we're making plans on uh, for for future expenditure permanent expenditure we're trying to fix those with temporary income nobody knows how long this commodity boom is going to last let's talk a little bit about um, about growth so I mean any budget is based on a number of assumptions one of them being that economic growth will be seen as averaging 1.8 percent over the next three years I mean that that doesn't feel particularly ambitious and it's so just talk to me about 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 how you guys are feeling about 1.8% economic growth over the next three years. I think I think it's probably realistic. There are a lot of factors um, that that Treasury would have taken into account here, and it's 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 simply uh, South Africa is is trying to play catch up. Um, we have a very inefficient state. We have commitments to cut uh, red tape, but. Um, you know, you've you've got problems uh, all throughout our economy, and one of the biggest uh, threats to our economy is is ESCOM, and it's got over 400 billion in debt. Um, we're just not a very efficiently run state. But this is also one of those those budget statements where, um, for the first time in quite a very long time, state-owned entities are simply not going to be getting bailouts. And that is a sign that maybe government is looking to make us leaner, make us meaner, and 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 try and, and just improve the efficiency of the economy. So they have said to ESCOM, look, there's still no clarity on whether they're going to officially now finally break them up into three separate units. But the finance minister saying that we need to to uh, have you sell uh, inefic- uh, inefficient assets, get rid of your coal assets, anything. Uh, that is costing you as ESCOM money, get rid of it. So uh, I think we're just trying to to slowly turn the ship. But as Alec Hogg said yesterday, the finance minister said to him, look, yeah, he was slightly nervous when he did his first uh, MTBPS or the, the mini budget. This time he said, relax. I think the ship is starting to turn around. All right. Just lastly then, um, and briefly, you did mention ESCOM. They have been given special dispensation to access additional debt of $42 billion this year and another 25 billion rand next year, that's got to be backed by state. I mean, that has to be um, a sovereign debt. So so that's that's still a huge chunk of money that Eskin can go off and borrow, theoretically, if they can get it, uh, which just makes that hole deeper. Is there hope for Eskim? There, there has to be hope for Eskim because as we have heard statements coming out of government, it's simply too big to fail. It, it is pretty much a monopoly in the, in the industry, in the provision of, of electricity. Um, there is moves, as I said, to try and reduce its debt and not make it the biggest liability to, the, to, to government and to the economy of the country. 136 billion rand is, is the debt that they're looking to take uh, out of ESCOM's hands there and, and, and pay it off. But 
Um, a lot of a lot of analysts saying it's still the elephant in the room. Um, you've heard news earlier that uh, there are certain municipalities that are looking to uh, be providers of of electricity themselves. Cape Town is looking to make themselves almost sort of load shedding free uh, with I think it was. 300 or 600 megawatts of power that they're looking to generate themselves. Uh, but ESCOM is going to remain a problem. Um, and it all ties in to uh, the, the the levels of corruption and how quickly we can turn that sort of thing around you. You have a, a an approach which is let's fix ESCOM, but the, the system is so broken that your national prosecuting authority and the police and the investigative units, which thankfully in this budget got slightly more money, they are going to have to, they've got their, their work cut out for them. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, we've run out of time today, but thank you for that explainer on the South African budget. If I could just ask you to perhaps summarize the mood after the budget in a sentence, it would be? That's <sighs> uh, <laughs> not a sentence. <laughs> Um, cautiously optimistic. I'll have to go with a cliche. Cautiously optimistic. All right. Well, so are we as we watch our southern neighbors uh, navigating some uh, pretty treacherous waters made no less treacherous by world events at the moment. Michael Apple from Biz News, and you can check out those stories, uh, a couple of explainers, some very good in-depth uh, journalism on the budget, as well as a number of other things, including Bain & Co., who must uh, really be regretting opening offices in South Africa that uh, story is going all the way to, to uh, the UK Parliament. That's on biznews.com. And that's it for this week's Biznews Weekly Wrap. Hey there, this is Mark Filipino, the host of the FT News Briefing. Before we start the show, I want to let you know that I actually record the briefing the night before it's published. So today's show, Thursday, I'm actually recording on Wednesday night, New York time. I mention this because events are moving quickly in the Ukraine conflict. So things could change between now, when I'm recording, and by the time you listen. Okay, with that out of the way, let's start the show. Today is Thursday, February 24th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered a special military operation in Ukraine. And how might the Ukraine conflict affect the global economic recovery? If you are effectively threatening World War III, the economic situation is going to get very ugly very quickly. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. That was Ukraine's ambassador to the UN during an emergency Security Council meeting early Thursday morning. He was speaking to Russia's ambassador shortly after Vladimir Putin ordered a full-scale military invasion. There were explosions in several Ukrainian cities, including the capital Kyiv, after Putin made the announcement on Russian state television. Meanwhile, in the markets, the price of Brent crude rose above $100 a barrel, and stock futures dipped after the order. The FT's Moscow bureau chief, Max Seddon, joins me now with more on Putin's order. Hi, Max. Hi, Mark. So, Max, what ultimately triggered this invasion? Well, in the end, this was all just completely Putin's own decision. There was no real, real pretext. Russian official sources and uh, state TV have been claiming in the last week that there was what they called Ukrainian aggression against uh, separatist territories in, in eastern Ukraine. They, they claim that this is uh, genocide. But in the end, Putin didn't really concoct any kind of pretext. He just went ahead. And did it? He said uh, that Russia would strive to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. That's a quote. And he's also vowed to bring to justice everyone who committed bloody crimes against civilians. 
What are Putin's long-term goals here? I know he said he doesn't want to occupy Ukraine. So if he doesn't want to occupy it, what's the long-term game plan? Well, you and I think about Ukraine as the country that is internationally recognized now. Putin made it pretty clear earlier this week that he is personally affronted by the very existence of Ukraine in its in its current form. He he gave this long rambling speech on Monday where he he said that most of Ukraine had uh, had been uh, taken from from Russia by the czars and uh, various uh, Soviet leaders, and he vowed to complete what he called the decommunization of Ukraine, which appeared to mean dismembering it and depriving it of some of its territory. So I think uh, that that could very very well be what he has in store. What about the international community? How are they expected to respond? Well, the U.S. and NATO have already said that they won't intervene militarily on on the side of Ukraine. There there will be extensive sanctions against Russia from from the U.S. and its Western allies that we will get later today. But I think Putin knows very well that there's not going to be any kind of military response from the West other than perhaps some increased arms supplies to Ukraine. But even already, that might be very difficult because there are reports of Russian attacks and even even Russian troops appearing uh, everywhere from the Northeast to the Southwest of of Ukraine. And Putin said, this is a quote, whoever tries to stand in our way or create threats for our country, people should know Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to consequences you have never encountered in your history. How has Ukraine responded? Have have you gotten a sense of what things are like there? Yeah, so um, my my colleagues in Ukraine are are, are in Kiev. Some of them have heard explosions. There are reports of explosions in uh, Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine, in Odessa in southwestern Ukraine. And people are, are, are really panicking. The Ukrainian government is planning to introduce martial law. According to the latest reports, they've closed all of the airspace over over Ukraine. And they have vowed to do what they can to, to fight back. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, gave, gave a very moving speech in the early hours of Thursday, where he said that when you attack us, you will not see our backs, you will see our faces. Max, you're based in Moscow, and I know it's you know, early by you, but do you know how this is impacting everyday Russians? In some way, I think because Ukraine knows that there, there's only so much that the West is willing to do because the, the West doesn't want an open confrontation with, with Russia, that its best hope may be the Russian people. Zelensky, in his uh, speech, he spoke to the Ukrainian people in Ukrainian for two minutes, but then he switched to Russian, which is his native language, and he addressed Russians directly for nine minutes. And it was uh, absolutely astonishing. He said that, I am, I am sure that there are Many, many people among you who who don't want war, and if the you know uh, Putin won't listen to us, but maybe maybe he'll listen listen to you. So far, there's not really an, any indication this uh, is going to happen. Putin is still you know, broadly popular in Russia, even if not as much as 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 he was. The question is, how much will will Russian people be able to put up with the economic consequences of this? Uh, the the ruble is already at record lows. The Russian stock market is collapsing, and there are about to be sanctions, the, the like of which that Russia has never seen from the U.S. and Europe. And uh, that will also have a, a big effect on Russia's economy. Max Seddon is the FT's Moscow bureau chief. Before the crisis in Ukraine escalated, the global economic recovery from the pandemic was looking strong, even with central banks sounding the alarm over inflation. Now, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is expected to slow the economic recovery, especially in Europe. Chris Giles is the FT's economics editor. He's been looking at the impact of the crisis on the economic recovery, and he joins me now. Hi, Chris. Hi, Mark. 
Chris, I know it's still, you know, early days, but what could a war in Ukraine do to torpedo the global economic recovery? The European economy starts uh, this crisis in a pretty strong state. Everything was looking up with the Omicron wave beginning to decline quite rapidly across Europe. But then the big thing is what happens if there is a big increase in gas prices and oil prices, both of which are imported for the European economy. The European Central Bank has done a a study of what would happen if there was a 10% cut in gas supplies. No one is thinking sanctions will mean that Europe doesn't buy any gas from Russia. Well, the ECB estimated that that would have an effect of cutting GDP across the eurozone by about 0.7 of a percent. So pretty significant just for a 10% cut in gas supplies. And it would have much bigger effects in countries that are really dependent on gas, like Slovakia or Austria or Portugal. Much more likely, though, is that one of the offsetting effects was even if there was a shortage of gas, what would happen is the price would go up. And there, actually, the effects are rather smaller. So the ECB reckons that the price rises that we've seen in 2021, so last year, that would will ultimately be knocking about 0.2% of European growth this year. People can make alternative arrangements, you know, cut back. So all big threats to the European economy, but it's not sort of catastrophic. Chris, what about sanctions? The West has already hit Russia with some, and more will definitely be on the way now that Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, could sanctions affect the broader global economy? I don't think so, you know, Mark. I think this is this in, in and of itself is not the big threat, not the specific sanctions. will be hit some companies really hard and some sectors pretty hard, but the overall economy in Western nations are is pretty broad-based and pretty diverse and should be able to withstand that comprehensively. So is there anything that can be done to soften the blow if there is a conflict in Eastern Europe? I think there are two-pronged strategy. One is to reduce reliance on Russia for energy, and that means both finding other sources of natural gas, whether it's Qatar or the US through liquid natural gas, but also storing more of it and making sure it's in strategic reserves for next winter. And then on the other economic policies, it's just ensuring that your general economic policies, and particularly what central banks do, doesn't exacerbate any difficulties from higher gas prices by tightening too far and pushing economies into recession. So there is, I think, going to be a bit of a stepping back from some of the more aggressive noises we've been hearing in recent weeks from central banks, and maybe a little bit more accommodation of the higher inflation, just understanding that that's going to hit incomes uh, and, and the inflation in and of itself will not persist at those levels, particularly when there's a big external threat near to the European economy. Chris Giles is the FT's economics editor. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mark. By the way, if you're an FT subscriber, join our Moscow bureau chief, Max Seddon, who you heard from before, and other experts for a free webinar on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Tune in tomorrow, Friday, February 25th at 1 p.m. London, 8 in the morning, New York. You can sign up at ft.com slash Ukraine webinar. Again, that's ft.com slash Ukraine webinar. We'll also have a link in the show notes. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
That's it for this format of the show for the week. Coming up on Friday, it's the BPH Digest edition. No news, no markets, just the most downloaded interviews of the week packaged for your listening pleasure. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.